Welcome to New Books in Political Science, a podcast from the New Book Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by James M. Banner Jr., Jeremy Surrey, and Catherine Kramer Grinnell, the editor and two of the authors of Presidential Misconduct from George Washington to Today, published in 2019 by the New Press. Jeremy Surrey is the Distinguished Chair for Leadership and Global Affairs and Professor of Public Affairs and History at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, University of Texas, Austin, also host of This is Democracy. Catherine Kramer Burnell is an Assistant Professor of History at Purdue University, and James M. Banner Jr. is an Independent Historian and Founding Director of the History News Service. Welcome to New Books and Political Science, Jim, Jeremy, and Katie. Thanks for having us on. Thank you so much for Jim, before we dive into the content of this incredibly engaging book, would you explain the origins of the project, especially how it connects to the investigation of President Richard Nixon? Indeed, I will. Um, I was approached in um, March of 1974 during the impeachment inquiry by C. Van Woodward and others to participate as a historian um, in helping to compile a record of presidential misconduct and responses of presidents to charges of misconduct. I leapt at the chance, and in eight weeks, about 13 of us put together a survey of uh, the subject uh, running from the first term of George Washington's administration through the last days of Lyndon Johnson's. We did not get into Nixon's um, administration. It wasn't over after all, and we didn't have access to many of the records that we need to assess uh, what he had done. Um, The request came from John Doerr, who was the uh, uh, House counsel, really, the, the, the special counsel of the impeachment inquiry for the House Committee on the Judiciary, and um, we followed the rules that he set down, which was that we were to provide um, coverage of all of the episodes that we could, that were on the record and that we agreed to, um, uh, all the episodes of presidential misconduct. We were to do so factually, that is, without interpretation. We were to go episode by episode through administration by administration and avoid interpretation and connective tissue. It's a very strange kind of history. It's, it's, it's um, more or less like the old medieval chronicles of the records of the monastic orders where it just set down events in chronological order. So it's not your run-of-the-mill modern monographic or general history. Um, the book, the report was submitted to Dorr. He accepted it. He was preparing it for distribution to the members of the committee, and the president resigned. Um, Dell Publishing picked it up, published it. I suppose it's probably a little bit more accurate to say printed it. It was issued in maybe a couple of thousand copies in hardbound cloth and paper, and it dropped dead from the press. No one ever heard of it. Very few historians ever knew of its existence. Um, and then, <laughs> um, for some reason, Jill Lepore, the Harvard a historian who is known to many people as a writer also for The New Yorker, discovered it in Widener Library one day, called me, and she said, what is this book? It turns out that the book had taken been taken out three times in 45 years. Um, she wrote about uh, the book, um, the old book, um, for The New Yorker, and then 
uh, a lot of mayhem descended on my desk, and it was clear that the book should be brought up to date through the administration of Barack Obama. So that's what I managed um, in most a good part of 2018 and 19. And Jeremy and Katie joined me um, as new authors, uh, the past ones, and we incorporated um, coverage of seven new presidents. Oh, uh, yeah, seven new presidents in the coverage that we had completed before. The original text is incorporated in this new book with the additions of those historians, such as Jeremy and Katie, who participated in this new effort. Well, thank you. That's quite, uh, that's quite the story. Um, at the end of the introduction, you write that historical knowledge can help illuminate the context, the motives, the means of presidential scandals, and also the successes and failures of the remedial measures that people take to try to uh, constrain presidential misconduct. Um, and your claim is not that the book for it can change the course of events, but that it can help decision makers avoid past mistakes and maybe also help the public distinguish between genuine corruption and something that is just a policy dispute. I'm wondering what has been the response from lawmakers, from the press, from the citizens that you've met to talk about the book with? Well, those who have read it and who have reported back to me and those who do not include members uh, who are uh, people who are holding office or members of the press known to us, um, they responded very favorably because th they have found it useful for the very reasons you um, mentioned, that it gives them the context and gives them the some metric, uh, very often their own, by which to measure the conduct of the current occupant of the White House as all others. Um, and um, the only caution I give people who have read the book and want to use it is that um, it, it, it doesn't offer any comparison with other kinds of misconduct in other regimes and governments and nation states. So I always ask the question, um, uh, ask them to ask themselves the question, compared to what? And in fact, no one can really give a very good answer to that. A question: Should we compare? Should we compare presidential misconduct to the conduct, good and bad, of prime ministers of Great Britain, or presidents of France, or chancellors of Germany, in our modern Western democracies? Um, in that case, um, we might not come off so well. But if we were to compare the record of American presidents with, say, governors of states or mayors of cities, then the, the national record might be quite good compared to the record, say, of Rhode Island or Louisiana um, or of uh, New York City or Chicago or New Orleans. Um, so um, we really, this book doesn't afford us the comparative grounds to do what I think would be best. And I think it's now up to historians to try to compile the records for other nation states to see if we can judge our own uh, performance against theirs. Thanks. I mean, to, to the listeners, this is an exceptionally uh, accessible book. I think anybody can pick it up and read it. It's very, very clearly written, especially the later chapters that have been rewritten recently. It just could not be more easy to connect to our present times, which we'll talk about towards the, the, the end here. Um, Jeremy, you wrote the chapter on Reagan and uh, you look at the Reagan presidency and one of your takeaways is that 
um, we have to distinguish between Reagan's personal ethics and his, what you call, his negligence in promoting ethics among his subordinates. And I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining this distinction and the impact it had on presidential misconduct in the Reagan administration. Yes, I, I think that's a, a great question, Susan. R- Ronald Reagan, as, as many people at the time recognized, uh, revered the office of the presidency and had great respect for the office. And although he had been uh, close to Richard Nixon before, he, 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 was, he was not an advocate of the kind of um, personal politics and meanness that Richard Nixon practiced in office. So he did try to rise above in some ways, the uh, misconduct that had preceded him in prior administrations personally. But he was very committed to reducing what he saw as excessive oversight and regulation in government. And he was committed to spending a lot of money on the military. And most of all, he was committed to bringing a group of close friends and close ideological soulmates into office. And that cocktail of deregulation new spending on the military, and anti-communist zealotry, along with uh, favoritism to loyal aides and ideological uh, soulmates, uh, allowed a lot of corruption to fester around the president. And Reagan, uh, although he was personally an ethical person, he uh, really did not like to get into discussions of ethics. He didn't like to talk about it, and he certainly liked to avoid confrontation. And so when he was presented with evidence of people close to him, like Edwin Meese, his longtime counselor and then uh, attorney general, uh, like members of his National Security Council uh, with regard to Iran-Contra, he convinced himself they were not doing the horrible things that the evidence indicated. And even when it was clear that they were doing horrible things, he often had trouble bringing himself to firing them or at least stopping them from their bad behavior. So it was negligence, but it was also a permissive atmosphere he created. If you were an anti-communist friend of Reagan, you could get a lot, get away with a lot of unethical behavior, even though Reagan himself was not responsible for his own personal unethical behavior. It's interesting. Last week, uh, Lori Hancox was on to discuss her book about the memos that Pat Buchanan wrote Nixon and also Haldeman. And the most fascinating memo that she reviewed for us on the podcast was one in which Buchanan urged that there be channels of openness, of criticism, uh, so that there wouldn't there would be these feedback loops that uh, there there wouldn't be this kind of reticence in telling people uh, what was what. In other words, that you needed a certain amount of confrontation. Obviously, Reagan and Nixon were very different people personally, but she emphasized that the extent to which we set up a presidency will have the effect of either closing us off from the realities or hearing some criticism. And it's interesting, as I read your chapter, I couldn't help thinking about how this, your words, ethical reticence of, of Reagan ends up uh, so at odds with his own personal uh, ethical claims. So even as his person is not unethical, he creates this uh, pervasive problem by neglecting management, neglecting to kind of come down hard on people. Right. And, and I think, Susan, he, he had always done that. That was part of his management style, which was extolled by some at the time. It wasn't just that he delegated authority. 
It was that he wanted to see what he wanted to see and didn't want to see what he didn't want to see. There, there was a degree of self-delusion with Reagan that goes back to, to his uh, years as governor of California as well. And I think we have to say that it wasn't simply that he was naive. I think he also benefited from this. He benefited from the unethical behavior of others around him, like Edward Meese, even though he himself didn't get his hands dirty. And, and that's, um, there's kind of cynicism in that, too. Can you pick one of the examples? The, the chapter is terrific. It, it treats the EPA, HUD, Iran-Contra, uh, Pentagon bribes and kickbacks and lobbying. Can you pick one and just uh, give people a reminder of the kind of presidential misconduct that was associated with the Reagan presidency? Sure. I'll, I'll stick with uh, Edward Meese since I've mentioned him already a few times. Uh, Edward Meese, some of the listeners might remember him. Uh, he had been a, a close confidant of Reagan's uh, since Reagan had been uh, in politics in California and had done all kinds of work for Reagan as a political advisor as well as a government official. And Reagan brought him to Washington initially as a counselor in a role similar to the role that Karl Rove or David Axelrod would later play for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and then made him attorney general. And Edwin Meese um, used his access to Reagan to personally profit and to push his own pet projects. So uh, he had a number of individuals, a, a set of group uh, of individuals who were part of an organization called WedTech, it's just one of many examples, who gave him personal loans. He did not report those personal loans, and then he lobbied for them for government contracts. Uh, at the same time, he also uh, traveled extensively, was reimbursed by the government, but uh, didn't report that uh, and took tax deductions for his own, claimed he had spent for his own <laughs> travels or had other people pay his travels. And he organized deals for people and was paid handsomely uh, while in office. Uh, the most notorious is when he, as attorney general, organized a deal between the uh, Israeli prime minister and a number of military suppliers in the United States, organizing meetings and things of that sort for which he was compensated. Uh, this is a striking story because in early 1988, then Assistant Attorney General William Weld, who would later become governor of Massachusetts, and I, I think is still a presidential candidate, actually, uh, came to Reagan and uh, told the president in the Oval Office in early 1988 that they were going to indict Meese and that the president had to fire him and gave him all this evidence and more. Uh, the president said he would fire Meese, uh, met with Meese later, and did not fire him. In fact, chose not to fire him, and Meese stayed on for a number of more months. Um, th th this is symptomatic of the way the Reagan administration operated. It was that permissive environment precisely that was what Oliver North and Richard Secord and others were operating in with Iran-Contra. It was that permissive environment that allowed in the Pentagon for there to be massive kickbacks for people. I, I talk about in the book, uh, Mr. Paisley, a figure in the Pentagon. He was assistant secretary of the Navy for acquisitions. He set up a shell company of his own and paid himself kickbacks of millions of dollars uh, in return for defense contracts uh, that, that he as a government official was, was allocating to different uh, groups. Uh, this permissive environment created uh, personal corruption and it created policy corruption, as we saw with Iran-Contra. Oliver North and Richard Secord thought they were doing just what everyone else was doing in the White House. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And the, the idea that not, not only the permissive environment, but also the principles of deregulation enabled some of that um, uh, 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 misconduct. 
Yeah, if I might, if I might make a point on that, you know, it, 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 we talk about big government, small government. I, I think that's um, a false dichotomy. What the Reagan administration was about was big government in terms of spending more on the military. Uh, and doing more, especially for anti-communist activities overseas, as well as spending more on social, social security and things of that sort, they meant less regulation. And uh, I think what we need to start talking about as a society is what is the appropriate form of regulation and oversight for the resources that we use. Um, when, you, when you're cutting back regulation, you're not actually cutting back government. You're just allowing government to become more corrupt. You do a great job in the chapter, uh, which I really recommend. It's a very short piece that packs an enormous punch. The way you go through the savings and loan scandal explains in such a succinct and effective way how deregulation actually uh, uh, creates um, behavior that is not in the public interest and that ended up costing taxpayers an enormous amount of money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Katie, your chapter is about Bill Clinton, uh, and you, you emphasize that there have been changes in the media environment in which presidents operate and in which the public views their work. And in particular, you see a big change happening in Bill Clinton's time. And would you explain what those general changes were and maybe give us an example of how they affected claims of presidential misconduct during the Clinton presidency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are two major changes in the media that I saw very much at play in these questions of presidential misconduct that came to the surface with Clinton's administration. The first is the shift in the the mainstream media and the the diversification of the dial that you ultimately have with cable television that really comes into being in the 1980s and becomes a force, a political force by the 1990s. Uh, and that creates more opportunity for commentary and for shows that analyze the news Uh, rather than just simply reporting the news. If you think about the shift from a news program uh, during the era of broadcast network television, that the news was only 30 minutes long. And of that 30 minutes, only about 22 minutes were actually dedicated to the news itself. Uh, And when you expand that and allow for that 24-7 news environment, there's just a lot more content that is needed. And so ultimately what happens is that more people come on shows pundits. Uh, the rise of you know, punditry that we know it today really begins in the 1980s and, and again expands dramatically by the 1990s. And so there's a shift in the institutional structure. You have more content uh, on, the, the t- on television. There's a shift in journalistic ethics that comes out of Watergate, um, where you have investigative journalism that really starts to question policymakers and focus on this question of scandal, the, what you know, some historians have called the politics of clean and dirty, uh, where they are very suspicious of presidents and politicians more broadly and are constantly looking to uncover lies and deceptions. And this is, uh, is the, one of the legacies of Watergate, uh, where you know, jur- journalists... Um, uh, like uh, Woodward and Bernstein were very much 
the the heroes of Watergate, um, and it showed the importance of the press holding the powerful in uh, holding them accountable. But then it also goes off into more trivial matters in the after Watergate as well, as there's this constant search for journalists to become heroes again. Uh, so scandal is very much at the forefront of what people are thinking about as they're reporting the news. There's more discussion of those possibilities that happens on the 24-7 news uh, programs. And then there's a third development, uh, which is really significant by the 1990s, and that is the growth of conservative media. Um, Another ramification of Watergate is that conservatives believed that it was that Richard Nixon was a victim of what they considered the liberal media that wanted to, you know, target his pre- presidency and bring him down. And so in the aftermath of Watergate, they doubled down on efforts that had been happening for two decades uh, to form alternative media institutions. And they really intensify the effort and continue to grow these media institutions. And by the um, the 1980s, you have the expansion of talk radio. And um, and then, of course, some of these more conservative perspectives find a voice on, um, on, on the cable dial as well. And so you have those three developments that really do create a very different media environment because of Watergate and Richard Nixon's uh, resignation. That's terrific. Um, thank you so much. That seems to form the context for something that you focus our attention on in your chapter, which is a shift towards defining presidential misconduct as personal or private behavior, uh, you write that the line between public and private life, as well as the public's distinction between the two, disappeared during the Clinton administration, such that private affairs are treated without discussion and personal shortcomings or transgressions are what become viewed as presidential misconduct. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this is different under Clinton than other presidents and what happens, what is the dynamic of of that in the Clinton presidency? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And that's really the the key issue that I found myself investigating uh, when I was researching uh, presidential misconduct and allegations of misconduct under Clinton is that there's that line that really does disappear between what is considered private and what is considered public. And and that, that had been disappearing for a while, um, you know, as a historian, I will say that this is a development over time. Uh, but there is a distinct difference if you look at someone like John F. Kennedy, uh, where, you know, he was well known for having a variety of affairs, but his private life was considered um, off limits. That was not something that should uh, become a topic of discussion um, in the media. And that ultimately changes over the next few decades. And, and I would actually argue that, that figures like Kennedy and Bill Clinton uh, were instrumental in that change as well, because they, they presented themselves and their, their candidacies for office, um, and particularly the presidency, 
by talking about their personality, by saying that their personal background um, was justification for why they should be president, uh, by really foregrounding their personality to connect to voters. And so it's part of their strategy, their very successful strategy of foregrounding their personality to reach out to new demographics of voters, doing so on shows like Larry King Live and MTV, where, again, they're not talking strictly about um, policy um, or you know what would be considered hard news. They're bringing in that soft news, that human uh, interest element to boost their candidacies. And then I think that then does shape the way people then cover their, their candidacies as well. Uh, you focus on Travelgate, Whitewater, 1996 campaign finance violations, and Monica Lewinsky. Uh, in your chapter on the campaign um, finance violations, you, know, you mentioned that the Federal Election Campaign Act didn't have the effect. Uh, Jeremy, in his chapter, also mentions that a unanimous Congress told the Reagan administration, "No, you may not uh, direct this aid, this covert aid." Uh, uh, to Nicaragua, in both those cases, it, it, there seems to be a theme of Congress understanding that it does need to limit presidential misconduct, but it doesn't seem particularly effective. Uh, I'm wondering if you would agree with that under Clinton, Jeremy, if you would agree with it under Reagan. Well, I think with the the campaign finance uh, questions that came into play under the, the Clinton administration, uh, one of the things that's really fascinating is that the media was really interested in this question. They kept bringing up and running stories, calling attention to uh, some of these violations, but it really didn't get any momentum in terms of Congress moving forward on that. And I think that's because many people in Congress also benefited from these these loose uh, these loopholes, ultimately, in terms of how to raise and spend soft money. Uh, that a lot of what is not regular, very loosely regulated by the Federal Election Campaign Act, Congress didn't actually want to necessarily enforce that because it would have impacted their fundraising strategies as well. So I think that was really uh, one thing that I found that's really interesting, that there was discussion about this. And of course, Clinton's opponents tried to use that as a way to um, to target his administration. But it's something that actually the, the media was more concerned about than politicians themselves. Well, I, I think uh, just building on that, I think Reagan was very similar in that he benefited uh, enormously from resources that had uh, questionable uh, origins and a questionable process in raising money. Uh, but Democrats were participating in a similar process, which is why they did not want to uh, prosecute him on this. And that's particularly true around the savings and loan crisis that you mentioned before, Susan, where you had uh, Democratic senators and members of Congress, as well as Republicans, collecting kickbacks from these deregulated savings and loans institutions, one of which was run by George H.W. Uh, Bush's son, Neil Bush. Um, but also, uh, Reagan did surround himself intentionally with a lot of dirty campaigners. Uh, he recognized he needed that. Again, he didn't uh, participate in some of the worst elements of that, and he often did not want to know what they were doing. Uh, but Lee Atwater and others around him were, were perfectly comfortable 
uh, undertaking some of the practices that, that we bemoan today uh, in terms of fundraising and also media attacks and uh, the sorts of things that, that uh, Katie describes so well in her chapter. Well, may, may I may I get oh, in just a moment? Please. I'm sorry. May I, Susan? May I? This is Jim. May I get in just a moment? I I want to point out that um, these kinds of things are really um, they predated the Civil War. I mean, for example, Jefferson was known around Tidewater, Virginia, for carrying on a, a, a relationship, affectionate or not. We really don't know with his slave, Sally Hemings, but it just didn't break out into the press. It was really suppressed when in the one mention in the Philadelphia newspapers in which it came up. So, And also, I think we have to keep in mind that misconduct, which we can describe as both using public office for private gain and the defiance of known law, um, started within George Washington's uh, administration when an assistant secretary of the treasury walked off with a quarter of a million dollars to speculate with those funds. Now, I know Jeremy, and I'm I'm certain I know that Jeremy, and I'm certain the same as with Katie, um, are, are interested in the ways in which um, we can defend the republic against this kind of misconduct or all these kinds of misconduct against greed against malfeasance generally, about, about uh, against um, cabalistic uh, uh, government as, as took part, uh, place in the, uh, in the case of the Iran-Contra uh, scandal during Reagan's administration. And um, I'd be interested in hearing from the other two as to how effective they think that laws and regulations, investigations on the part of Congress, the courts aroused citizens, groups like the ACLU and so on, have been over 230 years of, of American constitutional history in protecting the nation and its government against the kind of misconduct that, that uh, Jeremy, Katie, and others and I have uh, conveyed in this book. Is that a fair question? Sure, I'll take it. Uh, uh, sure. I I was going to give a mixed answer. I think, first of all, Jim, um, uh, American politics has always been dominated by money. Um, And it's important to note that there's a consistency here. It's it's personal money. Even today, even after the repeal of Citizens United, the vast majority, something like 90% of the money in American politics comes from individuals, comes from wealthy individuals and and then various groups of individuals. Um, So this has been a longstanding issue going back to the... Rockefeller money of the late 19th century, et cetera. Um, and, and that's never been effectively dealt with. Uh, we've never had ways of, of really managing that at the federal level. State and city uh, governments have done things about that. Uh, but I do think that we go through these patterns of moments when we do pay more attention to this and we find ways of uh, shedding more light and having more transparency around these issues. And I do think that has an effect. I think we've been more effective in deterring certain behaviors during moments of vigilant uh, oversight and vigilant public attention and vigilant journalism than we have at moments where we become lax. Uh, the 1970s, mid-1970s, was, was actually a fairly clean period in American politics 
not really because of the laws, but because of the the efforts by members of Congress and others to uh, provide oversight and public media attention to these issues. And, and I think we, we laxed back, we, we lurched back in the 80s. I, I imagine we're going to have much more attention to these issues and, and much um, stricter efforts to limit money in politics in the coming years. But then we'll forget and we'll go back to, to where we were before. I think that's a really good point because during one thing to remember is during the post World War II period, there isn't a lot of public vigilance about what the government is doing. There's a lot of trust that and, and a belief that you know the the president is working in the best interest of the nation um, and that you can trust your government. Uh, there is a trust between journalists and. And presidents, uh, there's a really famous speech that uh, John F. Kennedy gives right after he is inaugurated where he talks with the press and says that, you know, when it comes to some of these questions about national security interests, you have to think about what's good for the nation and not necessarily what's going to inform the public. And so he's telling them that you can't tell the public everything because there's some national security issues that are at play. And so you need to trust me and trust the government, uh, trust that the president is doing the right thing. Well, of course, it comes out over the course of the 1960s that there is a lot of deception and that this trust was not necessarily warranted all the time. And so I think that Jeremy's right in thinking about that. Um, And then what follows is an era of vigilance, an era in which uh, citizens are are demanding to know more about their government. They're demanding transparency. They're trying to change political parties and political institutions to make them more transparent. Um, and and so and that really does play a role in in correcting some of the abuses of power that um, that were allowed to happen. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that you know this comes in waves, and we need Congress, we need the press, we need the public, all in a sense, to be on this. Yet much of what inspires the presidents to bend rules also inspires. Congress to do that so they can't always be the check that we might expect them to be of executive power. Well, I think that Congress plays a role um, and they they play a very important role, but there are other institutions that also play a role. Um, As you mentioned, the press, absolutely, but the courts. The courts play a really important role in in making sure uh, that Again, um, exe- you know, setting limits on executive privilege. Uh, the courts played a central role in Watergate by saying, um, you know, that Richard Nixon had to hand over the tapes um, and that he could be held liable for um, illegal activity um, that he had committed. Uh, the, the FBI, the bureaucracy, um, that they play a role too. And so, you know, different uh, different members of the bureaucracy who are saying no to the president when. He asks them to do some, something illegal, um, who, who have a path to articulate um, those, uh, uh, those requests, um, like you see with the contemporary whistleblower. Uh, I think that's something that you saw with Watergate as well, um, that there were people within the bureaucracy were reaching out and trying to say that what the president is asking me to do, I want to say no to that. And so members of the bureaucracy are important here as well. Yeah, I would just build on that excellent comment from Katie. I agree 100%. And, and the bureaucracy is a crucial element of this. And it's one of the areas where our system is the least corrupt, actually. Um, but Congress only acts on these issues when Congress feels public pressure. 
members of Congress who have been elected under a current system have an obvious incentive to continue playing by that system. So Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump, as much as they might differ in their politics, they've been elected by the same fundraising system in a sense. Um, It's when there's public pressure, extra congressional pressure, and members of the House feel it the most, of course, because they're up for election every two years. It's when there's uh, mobilized public pressure that you really see Congress move on these issues. Public pressure also influences the courts as well as the bureaucracy. Uh, this is a case, and all three of us, I think, all of us, I think, have written about this. This is a case where public activism really matters. And uh, that's why I'm optimistic today, because I think there is more public activism around these issues than there certainly was three years ago, four years ago. I, I want to go back to where we are today and how your book connects to it. But I want to ask one more question of, of Katie about her chapter on Clinton, you know, you highlight the gap between Clinton's lying about marital infidelity and the kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors that would warrant impeachment and removal from office. And at the start of the book, Jim says that, you know, there was a decision to exclude accusations of misconduct that took place solely in private life. Uh, and this is a quote from the book, that did not impinge on public affairs. And I'm wondering in the context of today, of Me Too, of Harvey Weinstein, is it appropriate to take out all things that involve private life? Is there something about excluding misconduct that takes place in private life that will then impact the way we discuss domestic violence or women's equal citizenship or other legitimate policy issues? That is, that is a really important question um, to, to, to grapple with and to think about, should there be some checks on that type of behavior? Uh, the question is, uh, you know, with impeachment, however, I think is a little bit different because impeachment is very much about uh, the victim of impeachment is the American public. Um, and so impeachment needs to be this, this question of uh, using the powers of the presidency uh, to, to help uh, um, or in whether it's economically or politically, uh, the individual in the White House um, at the expense of the American people. And so I think that's one thing that, you know, I was really grappling with in terms of this question about, you know, whether impeachment was warranted or not. It clearly became a very partisan issue. Uh, But I think that getting outside of the extremes, Jeremy uh, gave a really great talk with me um, at a congressional briefing last month where he really talks, where he mentioned uh, very astutely how impeachment is on the spectrum of ways in which Congress can rein in executive abuses. And so I think that's something to think about when we think about um, misconduct, that there is this spectrum of misconduct. Some of it is private, some of it is public. I think Jim would probably say that the, the boundaries of this particular book uh, really focused on what was defined as misconduct at that particular time. So what did Congress take up um, in terms of an investigation into misconduct? And of course, that definition does change um, as the personnel becomes more fodder for um, public co- political conversation. Well, well, let's talk about impeachment, because this might be the best timed book of the year on um, 
one could hardly, it's almost the book we should wish for, that somebody would have provided a compendium of the types of misconduct that have happened in the past so that we might judge uh, and deliberate on the presidency of Donald Trump with clarity and not get um, caught in uh, uh, the polarized language that uh, he may well be encouraging. What, for the three of you, are the takeaway messages of this book for those people who are grappling with the Trump presidency, with uh, the vote of impeachment, et cetera? Uh, well, I'll I'll take a first stab, and then and then Jim and Katie can say smarter things. Um, for me, there are, there's a long list of takeaways, but there are two that I would just highlight for our discussion right now. First, um, presidential misconduct is an old story, but scale matters, and um, we have to compare what we're seeing today to what we've seen in the past, and the enormity of what we see today uh, should alarm us. Uh, after looking at this long, as you said so well, Susan, compendium of prior misconduct. Um, we, we have a track record here, and we can see how this stacks up against it. And second, um, it is quite clear that the best protection against presidential misconduct, or the best recourse, has almost always been uh, congressional and judicial action of one kind or another. And this just builds on uh, what Katie referred to before and what we were talking about in Washington a little while ago, uh, which is that uh, Congress has a long tradition of oversight, uh, investigation, and it's absolutely crucial for it to do it. And people might sometimes find it annoying. Uh, they might sometimes not want to participate. But this is exactly what Congress not only has the constitutional duty to do, but it's absolutely necessary. And I think our book shows that. Jim? Well, I would like to take that a little bit Further, um, I ask myself, is there anything structurally different in the kinds of misconduct we've seen over the course of American history? And I think there is. I think the break with, let's call it normal misconduct, occurred in the Nixon administration when, for the first time, a president of the United States was organizing malfeasance and wrongdoing out of the Oval Office. We had never seen that before. I mean, most of the presidents whose uh, administrations we recognize as deeply corrupt, say Grant and Harding, themselves were really as white as the driven snow. They were really, they were blameless of misconduct. They were just naive, incompetent, um, unseeing, uh, forgiving of cronies and so on. That's where they got into trouble. Nixon himself was orchestrating misconduct. Then came along Ronald Reagan, I'd been, and Jeremy will check me if I overspeak or misspeak here, along came Ronald Reagan. And within his administration, there was a cabal that put together um, the, um, the, trans the transfer of funds from an authorized purpose to an unauthorized one. And that's what we know as the Iran-Contra scandal. And that was done out of sight of um, investigative oversight. No one really knew what was being done and what had been done. What we see with this administration is putting those two kinds of misconduct together for the first time in American history. Misconduct is being driven from the White House on the one hand, and there's a cabal, there's a shadow government, 
this time including people such as Rudy Giuliani outside the administration, outside the appointed offices of government, trying to um, create um, policies that are not authorized by State Department, by Congress, by cabinet officials, and so on. And I think that I am most troubled by this twinning, this joining of these two kinds of very serious kinds of wrongdoing in the same administration, um, which is what we see today. Katie? I, I guess my my big takeaway from reading this book, reading my co-authors' contributions and working on it my, myself is that, you know, as Jeremy mentioned, congressional investigations into presidential misconduct, media inquiries into misconduct, they um, have been central uh, to American history. This is a, a very consistent part of the political process. But through those, uh, they, they play a really key role in shaping the very parameters of acceptable and legal behavior. And, and I think one of the things that becomes very clear, especially when you look at recent history and the new contributions that we brought to this project, um, is that you know, there are both laws and norms that, that shape presidential conduct and, and that Congress can do something about it. Uh, if they see the executive is becoming too powerful, even if there isn't a law on the books, they can pass laws like campaign finance reform, like the War Powers Act, like the Ethics in Government Act, like the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. They can pass laws to say that there are boundaries for what the president can do. Um, and so I think that's a, a really important um, element and, and why why Nixon is a turning point, uh, because it did change the conversation about what was acceptable presidential behavior um, at, because there was a congressional investigation into this um, and because reforms were passed. And most significantly, because Congress acted on these concerns and acted on the evidence that showed that Nixon had abused the powers of the office, they said uh, they refuted his central argument that when the president does it, it's not illegal, um, and they held him accountable. And, and I think that's really the, the key lesson that comes out is that um, it doesn't always go to the extent um, of impeachment, but holding presidents accountable is something that does take congressional action. It takes a, a vigilant media and uh, it takes the courts, um, it takes the bureaucracy, and most significantly, as Jeremy already alluded to, it takes the public you know, demanding um, this accountability as well. Well, I think the definition of a great book is one that you can't put down when it's in your hands and you can't stop talking about when you have a podcast. Um, I think we could continue talking about this because I think this book is incredibly relevant in this moment in a way that books rarely are. So I'd like to encourage everybody to... Uh, Find a copy of Presidential Misconduct from George Washington Today, edited by James M. Banner, Jr. Uh, this is the New Press 2019. It's available on IndieBound, uh, IndieBound.org, which locates it at your nearest brick-and-mortar bookstore. Mine was at Labyrinth Books in Princeton. Shout out to them. Do we have any shout outs from bookstores near you guys? So uh, book people in Austin. Excellent. 
head to book people in Oxford. You can also get it online. We know that, but let's support uh, the press and the bookstores. Uh, all three of you, what projects are you working on right now? I am currently actually uh, on my sabbatical in Denver, Colorado as a scholar in residence at the Cable Center. And I am working on a political history of cable television uh, from the Nixon administration through the Clinton administration. And uh, I I am not on leave. I'm very jealous that Katie is on leave. I'm just about to begin (laughs) our our, uh, spring, winter, spring semester here, but I am working on a book on how American democracy has recovered and renewed during prior periods of stagnation, decline, and despondency. And we've had these moments before, and I'm trying to think through and understand and narrate how we can learn from those moments for the moment we're in today. And I am retired, which means I guess I'm on permanent um, uh, leave. Um, And I have just submitted to a press a book-length essay on revisionist history that tries to make sense of what historians do, how they've always thought and argued with each other, why they do so, why we should always expect it, and um, and uh, try to bring some order to a debate that's gone on since the days of Herodotus and Thucydides. Well, Jeremy Surrey... Catherine Kramer Brownwell and Jim Banner, thank you so much for coming on New Books and Political Science. We'll look forward to hearing you on the New Books Network with these new projects. And for our audience, presidential misconduct from George Washington to today, the New Press 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Susan. Thank you.